Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I struggle to be myself I raise the glass It's one more night that I won't get home I'm leaving it up to you You're calling the shots now We're going to go everywhere tonight, ladies and gentlemen. It's a thrill and an honor to be here. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming to the stage my good friend, the main man, Mr. Paddy Considine. Give it up. Hello. Hello, Matt. Good to see you, boss. Just Bef- enjoy a sip of this uh, coffee. What is it? It's oh. a, it's a virgin yeah. espresso martini. So yeah, so it's basically It'll a ton of coffee. <laughs> How is it? It's very strong. Is it? It will get me up the M1 after this show. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Paddy has driven all the way down from Burton on Trent to be here yeah. tonight. You've heard of that place, haven't you? And I think if it's all right with you, my friend, we should start there because uh, I do believe that where we're from does shape who we become. Uh, and I'd love to know, as we start the conversation off, how growing up in Burton shaped your worldview as a human, but also perhaps your perspective as a storyteller and an artist. That's a big question, Matt. I don't know. Uh, I mean, only the big guns, Paddy. Only yeah. the big guns. Where to start with something like that? You know, 
um, it burnt on train. It's just a small town in the Midlands. Um, I, I, I guess it wasn't really so much about growing up in the in the town itself. It was more about the area that I grew up in, which was a housing estate called Winsel. And um, I grew up there, you know, in a council house. Um, and uh, I'm one of, uh, how many of us is there? Six of us um, as kids, you know, to so an Irish family. Two boys, six, yeah, four I've girls, right? Yeah, I've got my brother, Chubby, and I've, and I've got four sisters, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm not sure where to start with how it shaped everything around me, you know, but um, I don't what, know. What about in. some of the local characters that stood out to you as a young kid? You know, because I think when I was going to come through and see you and spend the day there and we didn't get time to, to make that happen. But when I came to see you in Litchfield for the Riding the Low gig, I said to you after the show, I was like, I get it now. I get some of these characters you've played in other films and, you know, the, the stories that you've told yeah. as a writer and a director. I can see how much of that specific area of the UK has bled into everything that you do. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, well, I mean, it definitely does. Your world shapes you, you know. Like when I was... Uh... You know, I was a kid. I, my, my father was an Irish immigrant. Um, my mother was half Irish. Her dad was born in Dublin. Um, and we grew up on this estate. And, you know, I grew up in a sort of world where um, I didn't know any of my friends whose dads didn't go to prison. You know, I thought that was a normal thing that dads did. Um, and I And I look back at my life now and I see a lot of the friends around me that they were all from broken homes, you know, all of them. Um, some of them had no mother and and some of them had no father um so we were all sort of i suppose we were broken kids really and they were my tribe when i was a little boy we used to run like a little pack of dogs and winsel to me where i grew up was a bit of a sort of uh i don't know i don't know if it's partly because of my imagination but i thought it was quite a sort of a, a, a unique place like smack bang in this in this housing estate but beyond us there was all these beautiful fields that you could look out at um and i always thought that it geographically it looked great i always imagined that i was in some kind of stephen king novel you know with the church on the hill and things like that but you know my sort of fascination with drama and stories i suppose just grew from being in my household the kind of characters I grew up around um, and the, the, the world I grew up in, the sort of television I was watching as a young guy and the sort of music I was listening to, really. But to, to put the men in perspective, they were, they were males, you know. They were, they were fighting and drinking and fighting men. That's what they were. They were working men, mostly, that I was around. Um, and, you know, the women were, were wives who, who sort of stayed at home. Um, I think I'm mythological. Um, is it mythologized? Maybe I've made up a word, but I think I probably did that to these people. You know, there was a lot of characters around the estate. Um, a lot of them, for some reason, used to dress like cowboys, which I always found quite interesting. There was always a, a cool boy Philemon. Um, and, uh, you know, some guys literally would dress like cowboys. Um Go to the pub with a poncho on and a cowboy hat, and this is without irony as well. This was right? before line dancing and shit like that. You know, this was like, you know, back in the seventies and early eighties and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's a very broad thing, Matt, because you know I grew up with that, and I sort of had sensitivities as a little kid that my brother and sisters didn't have, you know. Um, and so I interpreted the world differently, probably by not being sort of, they would say, neurotypical, whatever that means. But I just interpreted things differently. I was a sensitive kid. 
and I grew up in a house where there was sort of, you know, it was a dysfunctional household. The happiest times were when my dad was away working or if he was in the nick. Um, and I found a great happiness came to the house in those times. Um, but then when he came back, uh, you know, I would see the behaviors change of everybody around. He dominated the atmosphere. He dominated the room. I loved him so much. Still, you know, still do write about him in songs. And in a way, I think I get my uh, ability to be a performer from him because I, I used to shoot like footage of him talking in the mirror, having a shave. And it was like watching Marlon Brando. It really was. I, it was astonishing. And I'm just a bit frightened to go back and look at that footage, you know, because I captured it. But I don't want to paint him as a terrible man. He suffered himself. You know, he was in Ireland in all the schools and he suffered abuse at the hands of the priests and things like that. So um, you're talking about broken people before you start. And then they've got these kids that they're raising. And uh, But I love them immensely. We did our best. That's That's all we could do. But I guess I was a kid with a massive imagination and aspirations. I lived in my own little world, I suppose. But all the while, I was sensitively interpreting all this sort of stuff around me. And you use the word violence, and it sounds like it's something from a very violent film, but it's very, very subtle things. You know, like when you're a little boy and you're coming down the stairs and um, there's a cupboard ripped off the wall and your mum's sitting there with a black eye and there's a little kid who's probably six, seven, eight years old and no one speaks about it, but you sort of know who did that. You know, and those are really hard things for a kid to sort of try and come to terms with. You know, it's very confusing because th this person's supposed to be your protector, really. So my dad was unpredictable um, and it sort of put in me this this fear of men in a way, you know, a fear of being around men. I, I You know, I have all these sort of problems going into a room full of people and if, if I'm walking past the crowd of men, you know, so I developed this sort of carapace to keep people away from me. Um, but really, I was just afraid, you know, of confrontation and things like that. So I was quite a scared kid, really, as it happens. And, you know, my only thing was that I didn't realize this, but I was a... People don't like using this word, right? But I think it's important. I, I was an artist. And that's not a wanky thing because it gave me an identity. It gave me something that I could call myself. And I wanted that. You know, I didn't realize that until I was in my late teens, but I, you know, I couldn't be a footballer. I couldn't be a boxer. I couldn't, what was I going to define myself as? I didn't realize that I was an artist. That's what I was. Um, and to me, that was a, a great thing to find out about myself because it gave me then the opportunity to interpret all this stuff that I digested through uh, my life. And then I could put it into songs and into films and in performances. Um, so I suppose, yeah, in, in that sense, the whole environment shaped my world. Um, the problem comes when you start to limit yourself a little bit um, and, you know, disclude yourself from things just because you're from that sort of background. You have to learn to peel away the conditioning and then the world becomes a, a much sort of bigger place, you know, for you. Um, like for example, I never thought I would ever do something like Shakespeare. That was for clever people. Um, I wouldn't, how would you even direct a film? How would you do that? I wouldn't even know how to begin. The only thing that felt really easy to me that you could put together was making music. That's easy. There was kids down the back of our garden doing things like that. 
growing up with punk, and I mean, I wasn't a punk. I was a little boy. I was born in 73. But my sisters had punks who were their boyfriends and things like that, and they'd bring their record collections around. And I'd go through all their music, and it sort of gave me the same sort of ideas in my head that you could just go and achieve anything if you just get, as John Lydon says, get off your arse. And I sort of had that mentality, you know, about me. I knew that I had to swim to survive. And I wanted to transcend the town, even though I still live there mentally. I had to transcend the town. But I still write about it in songs, um, you know, m- a lot of stuff about it on the new record, you know, places where I grew up. They're just dropped in there and things like that. But, yeah, I guess it did shape my world. In terms of, like, mentors, do you remember being a kid and, and you're watching films you're hearing music you're getting inspired by art was there anyone in your life that encouraged that side to your personality and showed you there was a way of achieving it obviously punk shows you that it can be done but was there people on a personal level that put their arm around you and said you've got a skill let's nurture it or was it just down to you to develop it yourself uh no no i I didn't think you could uh do anything i had i had teachers at school that i loved and uh, who brought out the uh, artistry in you i used to draw as a kid i can't draw anymore i can't write really my name um i I really can't you know he knows it he just can't write i used to be able to write and uh, my wife will say you can't i can't write anymore like this this sort of like sort of condition that i have i can't even fucking write properly anymore you know um with a pen so I, I just lost my ability to draw can't do it um but i had a, I had a teacher in in um in junior school called miss griffiths and she was a wonderful lady she'd tell us ghost stories and i loved her you know and um she encouraged a lot of that sort of you know artistry in me but then you have her for a year and then you're with some fucking tosser you know for the next year and uh i hated it i hated school but you know, I call them angels along the way. I just, well, what I had was this. I couldn't go anywhere without having a fucking label on my back. So literally friends would not, like some of their parents outside of my circle of the kids I've described wouldn't let me hang around with their kids. I'd literally have doors shut in my face. And I'd be like standing there and going, well, what, what have I done? You know, you're not hanging around with him. And I'm like, I wasn't a kid that got into trouble. But there was a reputation around the name of my family that meant that I had doors closed on me. Because of your dad? I think it was mainly because of that, yeah, because he'd go out fucking... And there was older youths as well sometimes, and I'm amazed I didn't get beat up. And then I'd realise what it was. I think, why is that guy off with me? Then I'm realise, okay, my dad probably fucking beat him up one weekend. You know, it was like... It was a bit precarious, to say the least. Um, But... So I just had this label and I had very low self-esteem, you know, um, just had that as a kid, felt dirty. And, and uh, you know, m- my mum my did her best, you know, to keep us clean and that. And then after so many years, it was just, I felt a bit feral, you know, um, and I don't really know what that was. But I remember being at school as a teenager, about 13 and going, what's that fucking smell? And it was me. I stank, and I'm like, what the fuck? I mean, I wasn't even bathing and things like that, you know? I had scabies and shit, and I'm like going, I look at it now, and I'm like, wow, that's... Is that because psychologically you had such little regard for yourself you weren't even aware? Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't realise. I had no clue. Um, I just felt dirty. I felt um, sort of... uh, 
you know, not not. I, I still feel it to this day, like like not deserving of of things. You know, always the one on the fringes, not fully at the fucking party. You know, just a bit of an outsider, really. Um, so, you know, I carried that through, and I was a bit ashamed, you know, of like my like my old man's behaviour and things like that, and the house. We never had fucking wallpaper even at times, you know, and it was like I felt ashamed of those things. I'm, uh, it's hard to admit. So I always felt like a little bit secondary to everybody else, I suppose. But, you know, I went out and got a, a Top Gun haircut and things changed, man. <laughs> Girls started fancying me. And, uh, you know. The rest is history. The rest is history. <laughs> It's yeah. interesting that you say that, though, Paddy, because I know everybody who I speak to about you would just assume because you're a guy who's in command of a certain skill set that's evident. If people have seen you in a film or on a TV show or on stage in your band, they look at you and go, wow, that guy's gifted. He's got something. So it's strange for people, I think, to know that even people such as yourself who've achieved so many great things still go through that crippling sense of it self-doubt. never, never stops, ever, ever. You know, it's one of those things that I have to deal with and I know I'm going to have to deal with it all my life. I don't want to make this, you know, depressing, but it's it's just, it's a saboteur and it's in me, you know, and I, and, and it's it's tried to stop me doing everything, this this voice, and it's just a kid. Even you know? when you, so when you're young and you're getting some exciting early roles and, you know, I guess you're full of excitement for the art. I, I never thought I was any good. You know, when the first thing came out, Romeo Brass, I, I just felt... Like I, I didn't think it was very good acting at all, you know, and and um, so I was surprised with everything that came beyond that, and I was just going along with it because you know I'm working with then Pavel Pavlikovsky in my next film, and then Jim Sheridan, and I'm going, well, I must be doing something right. I don't know what I'm doing, but I must be doing something right. Fake it till you make it, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's how I felt. I thought, so you know, I'm going to get called in. I'll get that tap on the shoulder, and it'll all be over, and uh, everyone will realise how fucking rubbish I am. I always felt that. But I, I didn't quite understand the power of this voice until many years later. And uh, I thought it was just associated with acting, funnily enough. Like, I, I hate acting. When I was in, I'll explain that better in a minute. But like, what happened? No, I'll explain it now why I say that. It fucking challenges me to look at this stuff and I don't want to open the door to it. Because I have this critic that tries to sabotage every single moment. And I've literally done performances when that voice is just going, you shit, you shit, you shit. And I feel shit, you know, and I, and I, I battle my way through it and scrape through it. But it got so debilitating to me that um, I just thought, I can't fucking do this anymore. You know, this is too much. Um, and I felt like that for years and years. And, and it wasn't t until, if I'm honest, I got offered a play because I wanted to to quit. I can't I can't handle it anymore. I can't handle being I can't handle all the doubt and all the self-deprecation and things, you know, and I had Twitter at the time and people would put up terrible things and you know, you think you you, you Never talk read to, the comments, mate. No, but you talk to people around you and they go, "Well, you have to cope with it. That's what you're doing." I go, "Nothing equips me for this shit. I'm not I'm not I don't have the fucking stones to deal with this, man. I I don't have it. I'm not that kind of guy." I don't know. I'm hurt. You know, I'm fucking hurt. I'm not supposed to be, but I'm feeling this and I don't like it. I want to get out, get the fuck out of it. That time I've got like a wife and, you know, and my children. But something about acting has always pulled me back. And it's just because 
it was all, it's always about facing that voice, facing that particular demon. And you can't let it win. Now, it's not always powerful. Sometimes it's, it's weak. And I'm, and I'm on top of it. But if I don't look after myself, if I don't meditate, if I don't exercise, if I don't look after myself, um, it can creep in and, and come back really, really powerfully. But I managed to, when I did, I did a play called The Ferryman. Did anybody see The Ferryman? I got, I got to see it. Yeah, it was, I did. It's I amazing. I feel like I'm not talking to you. Um, I, yeah, I did a play called The Ferryman. And, uh, hello. And uh, I got sent this script and I read it and I just went, oh, God. Oh, fucking hell, man. Because I knew, I knew what it was. I knew it was a challenge. And it challenged every fucking demon, every doubt. This script challenged it. Because I've got to go out on a stage, I've got to do hundreds of shows, and I've got to do it in front of, I didn't know at the time, but it would be nearly a thousand people a night. And on a stage, there's nowhere to hide. You can't hide within yourself. I do these performances and people go beautifully restrained. And I go, I'm not restrained, I'm fucking terrified. I don't know how to act, you know? I had to learn how to act, is basically it. I can improvise with anybody. Not a problem, I can do that. But what's the point of being a one-armed fighter? I'm going to have a short career, aren't I? I've got to learn how to work with text. I had no education in acting. And that's fine. Some people are better actors than me. I'm not like that. I can't play the fucking chords. I'll play the notes, baby, but I don't know chords. And I got that from B.B. King. He said that. to you. a great line. Yeah. He said, I I don't know how to play chords. I'll just do the notes. And I'm like, I can do the notes. I can do the big notes, but the, that shit, I'm, I can't do it, you know? It's really interesting. I'll share a quick story with you. I met Taron Egerton once, and he was talking a lot about Stephen Graham and yourself and the reverence that, I don't know how classically trained he is, but there's a reverence that I've felt with actors and performers that I've met who look at that school that you know people like yourself are from, where it is, quote-unquote, untrained, mm. and there's such a rawness and an honesty there that... The people, Danny Mays is another one. The people who've gone to RADA and have gone through the educational system to learn the craft, I know that they all look at people like yourself and they go, I wish I had a bit of that. So I guess it's like that kind of grass is always you greener. Ain't gonna, thing. You ain't going to get it. Yeah, you've either got it or you, you haven't. You ain't right? going to yeah. get it. You ain't from my fucking, you ain't cut from that cloth. You, you're not going to get it, you know, but, but, it, but that's okay. You know, you're great at what you, you want to do. I didn't train to be to be in dead man's shoes. I didn't train for that. That's that world you spoke about. That's where I got him from. That's my dad. You know? That's the guy that would wait six months to fucking go down and cave someone in that had offended him. You know, or offended his daughter, one of his daughters, or whatever the situation. That was that guy. You know? So these things are coming from experience. Now, acting allows you to... You don't need that. I've just played a king. You know, I'm not a king in any, any way, Game shape, of Thrones or fans? I sure am. I but, can't you know, wait I, to see I, that. I just played a king. And like, you know, I shouldn't be playing a king, that little shit kicker. But this is the thing. You can't let these, these backgrounds. Uh, what I want to see is better opportunities for working class kids in terms of people going in. And I never get asked to do it. But to talk to them, you know, people from where, where I'm from and, and say, look, this is, this is the world. This is the opportunities that you can have. Not everyone's going to make it, but you can just broaden your scope a little bit and look beyond the factories like I did. If you want to, you can, just to inspire people, inspire people to write. 
because we still need those voices in, in, in film and in music. You need them. But at the same time, a kid like me can't limit himself by going, oh, I can't play a king. I don't want to play like Prince fucking Charles, but I'll play a, I'll play a fictional king in something mythical. Why not? Why shouldn't I do that? Anthony Hopkins did it. You know, I'm, I'm going to do it. So you can't have limitations, but I have admiration for people that went to school. I didn't learn about acting, and I am still learning, by the way. This is not something that's over by any means. I can produce naturalism and rawness. That's great. But I can't pick up the telephone and go, hello, oh, yeah, can I have a taxi, please, to work? I just feel like the biggest twat in the room. And I get offered these cop things all the time, and I go, I'm not that guy. I can't do it. I can play a cop in Red Riding, the Red Riding trilogy, because there's something there, you know. There's conflict. There's interest. But somebody's just going, at 9.15, we saw the van in Brick Lane, and then at 10.30, it went down there. <laughs> I'm not your fucking man, you know. Don't ask me to do that, because I can't do it. I can't play chords. How did you find the informer? Because I, I don't watch... I don't watch a lot of, of cop drama stuff, but I watched The Informer and I thought you were brilliant in that. And I think there the conflict is, you know, he obviously goes undercover into that fascist organization and kind of gets sucked in. Was that part of the attraction of that role? Was the kind of... Because you were great in that. I've never seen it, mate. I've never seen it. I, I don't... <laughs> what drew you to the project then? I'd just done a play and I was fucking skinned. No, that's really cynical. Um, that's not true. But I did, listen, in all honesty with that, I did struggle because I was going like, and I remember I said to my agent at the time, they need an actor to do this. They need someone who can play chords, you know? And, and I'm like going, and they're going, no, no, you'll be great. You can do that. And I'm like, but I struggle with those things, you know? And, and, and that was, I'd just come off playing this role on, in the West End that was a real journey, you know? It was an incredible journey I went on. I don't know how good I was at the end of it. I don't really care because that's where I learned how to be an actor by learning a bit of craft, doing my apprenticeship at last and repetition night after night, the same thing. And it took me until we did it on Broadway, three quarters through that run, you know, for me to go, wow, I get it. I've been putting all this weight on myself to perform, to fucking, you know, and I'm going, it's just there, man. It's just right in front of you. You've, you haven't got to do anything. You just have to be. That's it. So I had to sort of go through that process, and I had a great director, Sam Mendes, holding my hand to begin with through it because I didn't want to do it. But it was like an officer and a gentleman, you know, when fucking Louis Gossett Jr. is, you know, trying to make him quit, and he's going, I don't want to quit. <laughs> you know, and he goes, what are you fucking doing here? And he says, uh, you know, and he basically says, I, I've got nowhere else to go. And it's a wonderful film. And Sam said that to me once. He goes, when we were in rehearsals, I sound like a nightmare, but I'm not. He saw the fucking hurt in me. He saw what I was running from. That's why he's a genius. He saw the hurt that I was running from and the insecurity and the self-doubt, and he helped me confront it. And he said to me one day, do, do you actually even want to be on that stage? I went, no, I fucking don't. And he went, why are you here? I said, because I've got nothing. I've got no choice, was my word. I've got no choice. And he knew what I meant by that. I've got no choice because if I don't do this, I'm going to, this is it. This is the end because I, this thing's just going to eat me whole. You know, this sort of voice in me, this doubt, this little boy. He's just a little boy. And that's it. 
But then what happened was I thought it was around my acting. Music was my escape. Now the music's starting to go into other sort of realms. Coming in now to that. You're fucking shit, mate. You can't write a fucking song. People don't want to hear this fucking crap. And, and I went, oh, okay. This is not about acting. This is about something else. And this isn't a different voice telling you. This is the same source. This is the same thing. You know, this is the same thing. But it just wears different hats. And to realize that when you can't allow it, I don't care if, if you fuck every note. I don't care if your voice breaks. I don't care if you break down crying. You're going on that fucking stage. And I would rather do that than run. So, you know, I feel... <laughs> thank you. Yeah. So I feel it's... In a way, you know, it's sad it took so long, but um, I just throw my... I, I just have a little bit more knowledge now that other people have that I don't. Even raw actors have this sort of thing that I just look adrift. I, I, I look at scenes from things that I was in, even this Game of Thrones thing, and I go, everyone looks like they're doing a really good job. I look like a fucking idiot. And I just, I always look like the guy who's like, shouldn't be there, but... In your head. Yeah, yeah. in my head. So I just now throw it away. I don't care anymore. It's exhausting. I'm 48 years old. I'm fucking had enough, mate. I can't be going to, in, you know, be 60 years old and still having all this shit in this same way. It's, that's going to be tragic, you know? But what I do have is a great drive, and that's got me through everything. This idea that I have to swim. I have to swim. I can't sink. I have no choice. Um, but as I get a little bit older... I'm starting to realize that you can have a 12 round fight and you can get smashed in your face and you can fight like Manny Pacquiao or you can learn a bit of Floyd Mayweather technique and do 12 rounds, but slip the shots and, you know, put it. And I'm going, I think I kind of want to start living my life a bit more like that. The fight makes it 10 times harder. The mentality makes it 10 times harder than it needs to be. So there's, there's ease there. It's easing a lot, you know? I think everything in life as well, it's true of every profession, every person. There's only a very select few people that are just born gifted. So, so few. Most people just have to keep doing it. And through the act of doing it, you improve and you get better. Yeah. But if you give up, you'll never know. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to go through it. And you spoke about Taron. What's wrong with Taron's acting? There's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with it at all. He's, He's doing got that right. same voice, obviously. Says, yeah, I'm we not all that. have. That's the crippling thing, is that many, many people have. And, you know, only a narcissist wouldn't have it. Gene Simmons doesn't have it. <laughs> That's what makes Gene Gene. So I want to ask you this. You mentioned earlier on about your dad and the experiences that he had in Ireland as a kid. When you get offered the role as the priest in Peaky Blinders, is all of that going into your portrayal of that character? Yeah. That, that character, by the way, is... I mean, that show's had so many amazing, huge name villains and despicable characters. And yours, for me, just is skin-crawlingly yeah. horrible in the best way because of that performance. You seen yeah. Piggy Blinders? Yeah, I wanted to play that part. I got offered it and I read it. And my only condition was, because I read the episode and I went, I've got him. I know who this guy is. He's, a, he's an absolute narcissist. He's a pig. He's a glutton. He has no regard for these Peaky Blinders. He couldn't give a fuck at who they are. You know, and I I hadn't watched the show, if I'm honest. I was aware of it, like everybody, but I hadn't watched the show. And I just thought, this guy has no regard. 
and that's his weakness. He, he is with powerful people, but he is not a powerful person. He's not even a priest, you know, really. Um, but there was a sense of you, pick, you play a part like that and you, you kind of go, yeah, these are the kind of guys in a way that were inflicting that, that damage on these kids, kids like my father. It was people like this, you know, and so uh, I was glad that he got his, uh, you know, his date with destiny. But um, I had one condition when I read that because I read the episode. I don't remember which one it was, and it got to the end, and then it alluded to child abuse, and I just went, I'm out. I said, I, I said if they want me to do this, I, you know, because sometimes on, on when you're doing a television show, they're not all written or they're being rewritten as you do it. And I said, I am not doing one fucking scene that depicts me with a kid in any way, even holding their fucking hand in that respect. There's one thing we shot at Easter, you know, and there's kids running around and he's messing up, but I'm like anything. I remember we did the Red Riding trilogy and Peter Mullen, you know, great actor. And I remember one morning seeing him on set and he was shooting the third one. And I says, hey, mate, how, you, how are you, Peter? And he goes, oh, fucking terrible, bro. And I was like, what, what's up, man? And he said, I've got to go and shoot that scene this morning where I hold the kid's hand. And he was in fucking bits doing it. Think just the thought of having to do it. It was He was in such discomfort. He played a horrible priest in that. If you ever seen the Red Riding trilogy, yeah, I think that's been lost somehow. How are you? Then off. He's from Let Vegas, this guy is. One. <laughs> no, you stay down here, mate. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I was just, uh, that was my condition for Peaky Blinders was like, I'm, I'm not doing any depiction, you know, fuck that. And um, and they assured me, they went, no, 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 that's not, that's not going to happen. So I could actually put that out of my mind. And that's never what I even played when I was playing the character. You know, I never thought about that aspect of the, uh, of the, of the narrative, you know, it's all. How is it working with Killian? Because I think his role in that series throughout is a masterclass of acting. I think he's just incredible in it. Was, I really was enjoyed a good working dude to work with, with him. Very good dude. One of the best. Really, really. I mean it. I had a really nice time with him. And I had to do some horrible things, kick him in the head and all that and whatever. I, I can't remember. But, yeah, no, he's a lovely guy. You know, for, for, this is the thing. You know, he just gets on with it. And that's that's fantastic. He's professional and he's brilliant. And... He's a great presence to be with, you know, and that's what it's all about, isn't it? You know, just just be setting the standard for it all. So I enjoyed all my scenes with Killian. I had a great time. Looking back through your filmography, and I've been doing my homework in the lead up to this chat, one theme that I've noticed, which you might not be aware of, it's just maybe something weird that I picked up, but throughout your career, you've been so blessed to work with some of the best actresses in the UK almost like right before they break every time, even going back to like My Summer of Love with Emily Blunt, who yeah. is fantastic. Has anyone seen the film My Summer of Love? So, so good. Came out right around the time of Dead Man, didn't it? And it's Yeah, we shot it the same year as Dead Man's Shoes, yeah, yeah. The main two that spring to mind is the, your films, Tyrannosaur with Olivia Coleman and, um, and, and Jodie Whittaker in, in Journeyman, obviously right before the Doctor Who thing, and she becomes a household name. And again, she was established. But Olivia, before Tyrannosaur, 
what made you think that she could pull off that role? Because as far as I was aware, before that, she kind of done the Duncan Scorsese, which is Paddy's best film ever, I think. And uh, well, hopefully, I want to talk about that later. And, and Peep Show. And then like she's in this hard-hitting, gritty, intense, powerful thing. And yeah. What did you see in her? Well, the story is this. The first thing uh, was, was Dog All Together. It was a short film that became Tyrannosaur. And that's what Olivia was in. So Olivia got the part in Dog All Together because we went to the read-through for Hot Fuzz. And we just, and this is not bullshit, this is true. We went to walk through the door at the same time. And uh, I said, after you? She went, no, after you. You know, and I looked at her. And then we did the read-through or whatever. And I rang my wife and I said, I found her. Who is she? Her name's Olivia Coleman. What's she been in? Um, I don't know. I think she'd been in that um, thing, that show, Peep Show. Because uh, I'd seen it on telly, but I'd, I'd, I'd watched it much later, you know. Uh, and that's a great show, Peep Show. Um, so, and that was it, man. That was it. We did Hot Fuzz together and, you know, got to know Olivia a bit when we did that. She had a little role in that. And then we we came to making Dog All Together. And that went on to do well as as well as short films can do, you know, got a BAFTA and things like that. And then it came to making Tyrannosaur, which was dog altogether really was me just saying, can I tell a story in 12 minutes? Um, and when I did it and it had its success the way it did, I, I, people kept asking what happens to the characters next then? So I sat down one day at the keyboard and I went, I'll find out for you. And I sat <laughs> And wrote Tyrannosaur and it and, and wrote it in a week. And Tyrannosaur is 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 that that is the story. That is what's on the page. It's not an improvisation. That used to piss me off when people thought that. It was written on that page, and that was the story. It wrote itself in a week, beginning to end. And even when I went in to try and tweak stuff, thinking, "Oh, I'll be a writer and tweak it," didn't want it. Didn't want it. It's like this is the story you need to tell. I had a vision on that and a, and a, and a sort of, uh, it, it, it knew what it wanted to be. Um, then when it came to making Tyrannosaur, which is now the feature film, I'm sitting in a, in a room with, with financiers and they say, so who are you thinking of for the lead? And I say, Olivia Coleman. And they're like, oh, really? And I go, yeah. Oh, well, haven't you thought of X, Y, and Z? I said, no, no, I haven't thought of them. I said, she's a blank canvas. I said, nobody knows anything about her. If, you, if I cast X, Y, and Z, when this character walks into the shop, you're going to know she's already damaged because of her body of work, their body of work. Oh, how do you know that she can do something like this? I said, I fucking don't. <laughs> but neither do you either. Um, I said... All I know is that I have a feeling about her. She's the one. And if I'm being an actor myself, I'm going, well, if she doesn't get the chance, how will she ever know? Because that's how the film game works. I've had people say, you know, that I can't play certain things. The Red Riding trilogy, you know, there was things, oh, well, I don't see him playing a detective. And it's like, well, I'm, I'm never going to get the chance, am I? You know what? So I, had, I was going into it with that experience. So I said, I just have a feeling about her and that's it. Now we come to shooting the film and this is an honest story. I tell it from the heart because this is about 
creativity and the nature of a journey of making something. We shot off the first week of Tyrannosaur and some of it wasn't going very well. Um, Olivia is a lovely, lovely person and she loves the family and she was always on her phone looking at photos. I've just been sent a photo and I could see that it was affecting her concentration in between takes. Oh, look, and I was just a bit like, and I went to her, I said, put your phone down. Put your phone away. I said, you have to commit. We'd done research. I'd taken her to meet people, you know, um, Christians and the woman who ran the charity shop who dealt with situations like the one she deals with. And um, so that was the first thing. And then I shot a scene. This scene was a brilliant scene on paper. Amazing scene. I even sat back after I wrote it and went, where did that come from? That's amazing. Great scene. I come to shoot it. And Olivia's not there. She's just not there. And I'm going, hmm. And I have a word with her and I say, Olivia, you know, what's, what's stopping you? Um, I don't I said, look, you've got to understand, these aren't your beliefs. They're Hannah's beliefs. They're not yours. Whether you believe it or not about in God or whatever the fuck you want to. They're not your beliefs. They're hers. You've got to own her. You have to own her. And she wasn't fully getting it. So at the end of that first week, I shot her angle again, her close-ups. Now, if you reshoot something, I said, I'm going to shoot your close-ups again because I don't think you were there, you know, and I need to see you. Believe this. So we shot it. And I didn't know this, but she went home that weekend and she sort of had a talk with her husband. And she says, I'm, I'm, I'm letting Paddy down. I'm not giving him what he needs. And I don't know how the conversation went like that, but she came back on the Monday. And what I witnessed from that point onwards was true transformation. I saw her become a fucking force of nature. But it wasn't out the bag. And it, and it took time. And she got it. She didn't go home again. You know, she got it. She knew what she had to do to commit to make this work. And... You know, I would be in scenes literally lying at her feet, directing her, throwing things to her, you know, laughing, laugh you know, just giving her little notes. You know, she's laughing at her hands and, they, and I'm just lying at her feet, feeding her things to make her laugh and using little tricks, getting her to run up and down the stairs to get her in a frenzied state. Little techniques and things that I'd used myself. It wasn't Kubrick, she Shelley Duval territory, let me tell you that. <laughs> There's still a lot of love there. But it worked, but she committed and she became powerful. That's transformation to me. And it was a great thing to witness. And it proved to me that my instincts were right. And it validated me as a film director and as a writer with that particular one. So that story with Olivia is one that's an, it's one about a revelation to me. And one that I'm very, very proud of um, and proud to have witnessed. I knew she was going to go on and do what she did. I wish I'd have written it in an envelope, sealed it, and gone, open that fucker in 10 years, you know? Because you, you knew then that the doors were open and uh, off she went. And, and, and there she is now doing a thing. But it was, a, it was great. The whole thing of making Tyrannosaur was, a, was, a, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. You know, I've never been so congruent. I've never been so in tune with whatever the fuck that thing is. Nothing could faze me. I was just on a mission with that and nothing got in the way of it. So it was the most uh, 
it was a, it was a brilliant creative experience and there was no distractions nothing there, there wasn't actually that was one of the few times in my life where there was no doubt whatsoever in terms of what it was i was trying to make you know and it's one of the best british films ever made i'd say has anybody seen tyrannosaur and would attest to that too i watched it today again for the first time in years and it's just so intensely powerful man everything about it from the way it's directed to the music the performances and you know there is that realism there but it's not as you say a an exercise and improvisation like it's obvious certain other projects that you've been in are yeah it's scripted and it's you know it's fine-tuned yeah it is it, it just knew exactly what it wanted to be it was it, no doubt even in the edit that the edit of it i mean my producer remembers it differently but it pretty much was the film was pretty much there from the beginning pretty much and i there was a scene at awake and every time i screened the film my editor would cry and i'm going pia fucking stop it you know but i'd be behind her she didn't know this but i'd be behind her having the same thing i always had an emotional reaction when i was making it because i was making it for people that weren't with me anymore as well and I was making it for my mother and father. My mother is the Tyrannosaur in the film that he describes, with the woman blind with no legs. That's how she ended up. Um, so there was all these things in it. It knew we shot the wake scene, and it was a very emotional scene. And um, I went back, you know, a couple of days later, and I watched it again, and it, it didn't have the same impact. And I went, like, what's what's happening here? And Pia's an editor; she has to search for stuff you know she has to find stuff because directors will ask for stuff you know producers will ask for stuff and she goes oh i've just changed it and i found it. i went no 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 if it works and we react in the way we are there's nothing to change that's what we're searching for that reaction you don't keep digging you found it know when you found it and um it just knew what it wanted to be it was like a beast shaking off fleas Anytime you try to turn it in a clever way or use a clever shot or use something, you know, oh, this is a filmmaker, it went fuck off. Didn't want it. And uh, it, was, it was a very unique experience because of that. Well, that scene elevates the soul as well because it's really heavy subject matter and it's, you know, these people's lives are oblique and hard. And that scene is like a bit of beauty amongst the shit where you see people smiling and singing and laughing and yeah. dancing and, and you see there. And that's what I love about both Journeyman and uh, Tyrannosaur is, you know, it's, it's sad and it's hard watching at times, both of those films, but they're ultimately, I think, love stories about two people. Yeah, they they're very different love stories, but it's about the love that two people share and there's, there's redemption there and there's hope. Yeah. That's exactly, I was thought, I thought Tyrannosaur was a love story. It was about two soul mates that found each other, but they were from different um, different backgrounds, you know, different parts of halves of the divide. They were just not from the same areas. The society would not pop those two people together. Um, it just wouldn't happen. He's furious and angry and his own de demented by his own demons. He makes judgments about her character and has no idea what she's suffering in her own private world. You know, so it's about these two dysfunctional people and it, and they're falling in love with each other. And that's the tragedy of it. They actually fall in love with each other and they should be together in an ideal world. But he can't cope. You know, he can't cope with people around him. He can't cope with that sort of level of uh, of emotion. He can't do it. Um, and she, you know, she's more savage than him. You know, she takes up the knife. He threatens it. 
threatens kids. <laughs> you know, he smashes his shed down after putting his dog down. His anger's consuming everything and destroying everything around him. That's why he doesn't want her with him. You know, I'll fucking destroy you as well. Whereas she's already taken up the knife. Um, so, yeah. It is a love story. And it's, uh, that, that scene you talk about in the wake is, is uh, it's really just showing her at ease with these people. In this world, she can be free of all her shackles and all the bullshit. And she can just be around these people and be free. Eddie Marzen is one dark dude in that film as well. My God. He plays dark dudes very well, doesn't he? For a sweet guy. For, the, for the, one of the most beautiful men I've ever met in my fucking life. But that's the case, you know. He's, he's a wonderful... I learned a lot of Eddie. I, don't, I haven't heard from him for a few years, but... He understands it. He's hit now. He's one of the people that's got it all. You know, we talked about earlier the the, the rawness and the, and the craft. Eddie has that. Eddie's got it. He's one of the those kind of beasts. I learned a lot from him about acting, a lot, and his approach to it. And uh, he's an incredible guy. He was incredible in that film. I um, it's funny. Eddie told me a story once that. And when he started acting and I turned up on the scene, that he was wary of me, that he was afraid of me. And there was another actor he mentioned as well that he was wary of. I hope he wouldn't mind me saying this. But he did say, because I ended up working and becoming friends with both of those people and doing, you know, great work. And I'm like, isn't that strange? You know, how we were a little bit sort of like, you know, they're, they're doing the things I want to do or, you know, I should be doing that or whatever it is, but. You know, our paths cross. I met him on the Red Riding trilogy. I knew what an actor he was. I, I asked him to audition for me. And I apologized for that. I said, uh, Eddie, I'm sorry I've asked you to do this. Because it's okay, Paddy. I know you, you, want, you have to get it right. It's your first film, you know. And I went, and he did. And he was the first one in the fucking door. And he smashed it to bits. Like, all I wanted from the... I'm not going to make that film with Olivia, right? Because I felt quite protective. And I'm not having some method actor strolling around, going, you know, like a fucking idiot. I'm like, no, I want quality. I want people that can switch it on and off. She has to be in the safest of environments. I'm not a believer in, in creating that that kind of world for, for actors that I direct. I don't want them all being frightened. And No, you do your best work when you're at ease. And she was at ease all the time. In all those scenes, she was at ease. There was never any fear. You don't need it. You're fucking great actors. Off, go and get on with it. You don't need it. We know what we're doing here. If you're safe, I know I'm going to get a great performance. So um, all I had to do with that character was get someone opposite her that she was safe with. And Eddie sat with her and they... I don't know if they knew each other a little bit, but they were talking and, and that. And then they did a scene and Eddie did one of the scenes from the film. And then after he went ah, like that and made a jump and they laughed about it. And I went, it's great. You know, he's the guy. And then I just turned to my producer, Dermot, who's my friend as well. I went, oh, I said, that's it. You know, fucking done it. Let's go home. He's the man. And he went, well, there's like 20 other people who've come and they want to go, you know, we should at least see them. And I went, I know I've got him. And, and I just felt bad, again, being an actor. I, and I gave every actor that came in the room the chance to do their best. I, I must have spent about, you know, sometimes nearly an hour with each actor 
just to sort of give them a chance to do something, you know, um, put them at ease and, and, but, you know, really it's hard when you know you've found your one and then you're going to go through the day, you feel like you're wasting their time it's such a vulnerable thing anyway you know auditioning for stuff and uh, i think even if you don't get it though and i i'm not an actor so i can't speak from experience but i would imagine if you don't get the part you still learn from that process right and you can apply what you learn to the next audition and improve your chances of getting the I next like none of it's wasted time i don't audition for things um yeah i could have done a lot more work I just don't. I can't do it. I don't like it. It's unnatural. There are people that I would... Uh, so if, he the, says, if the part is contingent on the audition, you... Let me just put this straight. Olivia didn't audition. Peter didn't audition. Um, I had to find the little kiddie in it, and Paul Popperwell was my mate, you know. So, you know, it was just the right person opposite her. I didn't want to take any chances in that role, you know. Um, but, no, I think it's awful auditioning i can't stand it um yeah i just feel like what's the fucking point you know can you put yourself on tape and i'm like no no i'm a human being meet me let's have a chat and a coffee and uh you know i suppose i haven't i've 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 parted ways with an agent in america you know i'm like nah i'm i'm done mate i'm not playing that game i don't care i'm 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 too deep in the fucking game now to do all that. And it's not a pompous thing. I'm sure I've lost more work than I've gained through it. But I just don't want to do it. You know, you, Sam Mendes didn't make me audition. So I'm not auditioning for people. Well, I think everybody sets <laughs> Go their... Go and watch a few things <laughs> if you like it. Everybody the sets their gig. own lines, I think. If you're willing to audition, by all means audition. But, but look, you know, it's a punt. I mean, you know, playing a king in this thing, it was a punt. You know, it was a bit of... If I'd have gone in the room and auditioned for that part, I wouldn't have got it. I mean it. I would not have got it. I wouldn't have got it. I don't work like that. And also, even at the read-through, I was reading it so terribly because I'm terrible at reading. And and they're such unnatural things. You know, everybody's putting on their best accents, you know, and all that. And I'm like going, oh, Jesus Christ. And it's unnatural. It's horrible. And... uh you know, but they're good markers, those read-throughs, because you get the nerves out of the way, and then you go, yeah, because I'm nervous, I just I can temper that back now and start to build the character. So that's important, but I'm, I don't want to do any of that. Come too far, mate. All that nonsense. We're going to open it up in a moment to the crowd. Before we do, there's a couple more things I want to get into, and one is Journeyman, because I thought it was an exceptional piece of filmmaking. I loved it. Thank you. Um, I thought... Jody was fantastic in it opposite you as well. And the reason all of it was so believable was the two of you together. It's such a beautiful love story and the lengths that she's willing to go to and what she's willing to endure to make this partnership work yeah. is beautiful. Um, did you have her in mind when you're writing that part? How did she come into the mix? Yeah, it was a different thing with Jo. It wasn't the same sort of revelatory journey that I had with Olivia, you know. It, it, that was something else, you know. I, I don't think I'll experience that ever again I, I i honestly don't um but jody was pretty established as a as a as a talent you know she was she was getting lots of working things i think she'd been in Broadchurch and stuff but again i hadn't seen jody really in anything um she was sort of a friend of my friend nadia who was a makeup artist you know and i met her and i had a certain shape in mind for what i wanted that 
character to look like. And, and, and Jodie fit it, you know, and uh, got on great when I met her. So um, that's how it started, really. Um, and, and Journeyman was a different shoot to uh, Tyrannosaur completely. I, I, I wasn't going to be in Journeyman, and I don't think I should have been really looking back at it. Um, I, I think I should have cast somebody else in it. In it. Um, it wasn't, although it has a power and there's something in there, you know, I can't look at it. I find it hard to think about Journeyman. Um, it's just, unlike Tyrannosaur that knew what it wanted to be, Journeyman didn't quite, uh, for me, you know, I was acting in it. And what happened was I just got lost in the characters so much that I neglected other things. You know, I became so absorbed in, in those characters and, and in that character of Matty that I just, I neglected to get little things as a director, you know. Um, so it was like we had a great experience shooting it and I came to the edit and I looked at it and I went, where's all the fucking shots? Where's all the, the... like, we we got, it was like, Robin and Robin Aladdin's cave, filling your pockets with gold and coming out and going, it's just fucking metal, aluminium. It's just, it's nothing, you know? And that's what I felt like. I thought, what happened? Was I brainwashed in that experience? Did it brainwash me so much that I thought we were making something special? And I, and then, and I didn't, I, 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 the process of making journeyman post-production was one of the worst experiences of my life. And, um, yeah, I don't, I don't quite know how to still come to terms with it, you know. I think the difference is that when I did Tyrannosaur, I went, fucking have that. You know, when I made Journeyman, I was almost sort of going, um, I, I, I hope they like this. There was a bit of a second album buzz about it, you know. I wasn't as assured. I thought the performances were good enough, but I wasn't as assured in my execution of it as I was with Tyrannosaur. And I think that may be the difference being that I might have wanted something from Journeyman that it didn't deliver me. And that was the big lesson from it. Did you want to pay tribute to the people in that sport that go through what they go through? Was it? Was yeah, I did. But also in a, in a sort of arrogant, sort of egotistical way, I'd written it, directed it, I acted in it. And part of me was going, fucking, I'll show these cons, You know, fucking have a look at that. And nobody, yeah, and nobody, sorry for all the language. It's embarrassing, but I'm such a gobshite, but I, I just uh, felt like a failure, you know, and, uh, it was I, I received wanted something well, though. Was it not received? It, it was well? received. Okay. But I, I, this is the difference. I had expectations for it that it didn't meet. So I felt like a failure. And that's it. So there is a purity about Journeyman. There is a heart to it. But my struggle with it is that I had aspirations for it, that it didn't meet. And I felt like a failure. I couldn't get it in a film festival anywhere in the world. Tyrannosaur went everywhere. Um, I, I was competing with something in a way that I just couldn't. It was unrealistic for me to do that. Um, but um, it was just being like Film 4 were begging festivals to have it. and. They didn't want it. And you're just hearing it going, oh, this is embarrassing. Like, film four are begging people and they don't want it. I just felt ashamed. I thought, it can't be that bad. I know it's not amazing, but it can't be that bad. So, um, 
I don't know, I sort of divorced it, really. But listen, here's the story about Journeyman, you know, like people romanticise boxing. And people in boxing watched that film, esteemed people in boxing. And they were telling me everything that was wrong with it as well. Nobody, you know. Cheers, like, guys. Yeah, they wouldn't do that. Oh, that wouldn't happen. Oh, the, 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 the team wouldn't leave him. Oh, the, and I'm like, bullshit. Yeah, some of that is their own fear bullshit. and insecurity, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, they do. When, when that happens to a fight, the only people that are left to pick up the pieces of the family. And that's it. And, and very close friends. You know, so all that sort of stuff, they like to sort of romanticize it a bit. It's not like that. It's an unforgiving sport. Even if you leave it at the top of the game with five million pound in the bank, it's still unforgiving because guess what? A week, two weeks, three weeks later, nobody's talking about you anymore. You are one of the forgotten. And But I wanted to show that in Journeyman and also the, the compassion that boxing can have for its community. Um, and how it bonds people, because I'd been in the rooms with Xboxes in London, at London Xboxes Associations, when I, was a, when I was a student at Brighton. So I'd seen that side of the sport, and I wanted to show that too. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I think some esteemed people, though, trainers and that, they've watched it, and um, they think it's great. Fighters don't watch it. I, I don't imagine they'd want to watch it. Retired fighters watch it. But then the the thing I learned from Journeyman was, and and all the art that you make, you just can't make it. I, I can't, you can't really make it with any sort of, uh, any goals or aspirations in mind. You've just got to execute it because it's driving you to do so. Um, and that was the only lesson learned from Journeyman. It's not about me. I made a story about a man who lost his identity and had to come to terms with what he now was physically and mentally. So in that, in that respect, it was a journey of someone. It was a journey of acceptance, you know, someone accepting their limitations. Um, that's what it became about for me. But there's an MMA fighter called Michael Bisping. And I, I was, well, I, first of all, a few years ago, my phone, I got up and my phone was pinging, pinging. I'm going, what the fuck's going on here? And I look at it. And it's a load of mates going, do you know Michael Bisping? He's a UFC fighter, Michael. And he's, at the, this point in his career, lost, lost the sight in one eye. He can actually take his eye out, so he's got a fake eye. And he was going blind in the other eye. And what had happened was he was flying to New York on a, on a plane from uh, Las Vegas. And he was going to do a podcast in New York. And he watched Journeyman on the flight. And... He walked into this podcast and made an announcement, and they thought maybe he was going to announce his next fight, but he didn't. He said, I'm retired. He said, I've just watched a film on a plane called Journeyman by Paddy Considine. He goes, and that's it. That made his mind up for him watching that film. And I couldn't believe it. And a few weeks ago, I watched his documentary about his life story, and, and towards the end, it comes up, and Journeyman comes up, and there's clips of Journeyman on it. And I look at it, and I'm just blown away. And I kind of cried a bit because I went, fuck, this is not nothing to do with you. It's not about you. You're just the conduit. You just have to, you're just the creator. That's all you've got to do. And then you make something, and you put it out in the world, and it's not yours anymore. It's not yours. Um, this thing, when I saw it within the context of a man's life, you know, it flashed up, and it was a part of this man's life story. I just went, 
how can it get any more powerful than that? How how can it? What what's what's the point if you don't make work that kind of reaches people, transforms people, or does something that makes people feel a little less alone in the world? I think we're just looking for familiar voices and people who've who've had similar experiences, so we know that we're not alone. And I think that film does that, and I think music does that at its best. So the lesson was just got to do what you've got to do because you love it and not get bogged down in the result and understand that once it's done, it's done and it's not yours anymore. That's it. And your films are nothing if not affecting Paddy Considine. And that film for me as well, like with Tyrannosaur, for me as someone who knows nothing of the the sport of boxing is just a love story about what two people will do for each other when they truly love each other. And that end scene when Nick Cave into my arms is yeah. playing rips my heart out. And I'd like you as we approach the audience Q and a section, if you don't mind, I'm going to name drop for you. So this isn't Paddy. It's me. Please share the coolest story ever. So Nick Cave into my arms is in the scene. And, and what did Nick say to you in regards to that piece of music? Well, he was willing to give me, um, the stems to the music because I wanted to sort of not change his arrangement but just you know leave a few bits out and all that and uh, he was willing to give me what's that's, that's her jaw hitting the floor <laughs> oh is that what that is <laughs> yeah he was willing to give me the stems to it and uh, and I was just like what you know and they said all you've got to do is, is email him you know and tell him you know set, write him a letter and he'll let you do it and I shout out I went I can't I saw him in town as well once and I just couldn't approach him. You know, I was just like, I can't, I can't do it. He's too profoundly fucking brilliant for me. I adore him. That's a silly thing. I'll bump into him one day, but um, yeah, I was privileged that he was going to give me the, the actual source, you know, materials to be able to do something with. But you know what? The song is such a perfect, beautiful song. It didn't need, didn't need changing or, you know, rearranging in any way whatsoever. It's a beautiful song, and that's why I wanted it in the film. So, yeah, that's that. you got to be pleased with that one. Um, at this moment, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I would like to introduce you to the gaffer, Terry. Who's going to gaffer, Tabby? Who's going to run? He's going to run. Tabby. Tabby Tips. Tabby Tips is it tonight, Apply a bit of bingo. He's going to roam the room with a third mic, and if you would like to ask Mr. Considine a question, Please put your hand in the no air. No maths questions. <laughs> I am not good at it. Let's go to Mr. Las Vegas on the front row. He's traveled, he's traveled the furthest to be here. Uh, I have two questions. One very quick one. Um, Game of Pricks. Tiger uh, Bomb or Alien Lanes version? Oh, uh, 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 <laughs> uh, Alien Lanes. Uh, alien Lanes. Uh, I'm a Tiger Bomb guy, but okay. Yeah. So, I have the original artwork to Tiger Bomb at home. Nice. Yeah. Very nice. Uh, so you win. Um, <laughs> the other thing was was when you were t when you were talking about um, you know growing up where you did, and this is something I've seen in interviews with you and, and Stephen Graham and, and Eddie Marsden, um, and obviously I'm I'm new here in town. So as an American who who's been watching your films and for years, and and I'll, I will watch anything you're in just because you're in it. But a lot of those class things that seem they seem to be a big deal here, like people from the north or people who are from the yeah. working class. I had no idea that any of that existed. Like, we have no concept that somebody from, like, Manchester in the Midlands, like, that, that doesn't exist to us. And 
so like when I get here and I start reading these articles about, you know, the people who are trained at RADA versus whatever. And of course in America, like we don't really do stage training for movie actors. We just give them a lot of cocaine and just say, go up there. If you got my, yeah. Right. But what I was wondering was, was, uh, was, was two things. One was, was, do you feel that that's, that's something that's changing here? And then also, uh, when you've dealt with Hollywood, um, and, or, or American film productions, do you, do you find that they, that they deal with you differently than say like a, a director who's like, you know, trained at, you know, in, in the finest schools in, in London, you know, the, that kind of thing. Do you find that they, they, they approach you differently? Um, no, I, I think, you know, the class thing is just something that's existed, you know, and, and, you know, when I was a kid growing up, the, the stuff on the telly, there was like Alan Bleasdale and Phil Redmond and, you know, Ken Loach and, and things like that. The, the, but, but they were talk, telling stories about people, you know, from, from the working class and stuff. And so these were the people that I could identify with. So they, they were the things that we, we talked about. We talked about the films of Alan Clark and things like that. Um, so th- it's always been sort of, you know, British cinema's always been steeped in that sort of thing, you know. Um, but I think... I have a, I don't know what to say about any of that. I mean, you know, training's okay, man. It's all right to to go and get some training in anything. You know, I always use boxing analogies, but you know, Manny Pacquiao was a one-armed fighter till he went to Freddie Roach, and then he developed a backhand, and he was a different animal. Um, or he developed a hook, whatever it is. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and I, and I think there was a point where certain actors were winning a lot of awards and then they're going, oh, they're the Eaton boys. I've never given a fuck about any of that. I don't care. You know, I, li- I, I enjoyed meeting people from other backgrounds. I don't feel they're more privileged than me because that really makes me a victim. And I'm not. I'm a talented man. And uh, so I won't buy into any of that shit. I won't have it. Um I'll just try and do the best job that I can do. And I'm a working class kid who came up doing, you know, gritty British films. I've made some stuff myself. And, you know, like I said, you don't, then you're playing the king of Westeros and you're like sort of going, well, how did that happen? It's like, because I'm a fucking actor. And, it, you know, and it's okay to do it. it it's okay. That's the, that's the point. You've got to take away that conditioning. And just open the costume box and dive in and go, I can't do any of this. It's not a problem. When I mentioned, when you mentioned Taron earlier, I think my reaction was, you, you can't give people the shit that you've been through. You can't. You know, you can't give that to somebody. You know, Edgar can't make Tyrannosaur as much as I can't make Baby Driver. You know, that's not to say you can't get in there and work with difficult subject matter. But... This is who I am, and that's the difference. I feel, you know, a bit more that there's, I don't know, it's, it's probably I have a few other different voices about me that makes, makes it a little bit different for me, but there is an obsession with, with class in this country. I wish it wasn't so, but it's there. I just want to, if I could ever, you know, just encourage some of those voices, kids like myself that, that might have aspirations. When I asked one of my teachers how you become a film director, he told me, Paddy, you could never be a film director. And I believed him. I didn't even feel bummed out or gutted or I just went, oh, yeah, yeah, he's right, you know. I didn't think I could be on top of the pops. That was for special people, you know, that was a reserved place. A lot of it is getting rid of the conditioning and the bullshit. 
And um, it's a lot of hard work. And being an actor is a lot of hard work, you know? And I think that's the best way I could answer it, really. I probably didn't answer it at all. <laughs> they don't treat me any differently in Hollywood as they do in Watford. Let's go to the uh, lady with the blonde hair in her arm in the air with the yellow wristband. Although they've all got wristbands on. That's what you get, is it, when you come in? Huh, you got it. Hey, hi. Uh, I'm your friend on Instagram. And <laughs> You're my friend? Yeah, I'm your friend on Instagram. Sometimes you like the things I say. Okay. I'm really happy about I that. that keeps up. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I'd like to ask you about like directing because I know how much you like horror. So have you ever thought about directing a horror film? Yeah, I have. I've got a few <laughs> horror stories in my and ghost stories in my mind, but I just feel a bit like if if, if you're to make one of those, I wouldn't want to make a conventional horror film because a lot of them are crap. <laughs> Most of them are rubbish. They are. I struggle to watch it. Although I like horror films, I struggle to watch a lot. And then this, like, my daughter loves horror. She's only 13 years old. And when she was 10, she just, we were watching something like, she was 10, but we were watching I Know What You Did Last Summer. And she, and she basically broke down the next three shots for me. Just stood there like, and she went, oh, they're going to do this, this, and cut to that, and then they're going to do that. And I went, have you seen this before? And she hadn't, but she just knew the rhythm of a horror movie. She knew the tricks as a kid of formula. So she's watching it going, they're going to do this, they're going to cut to that, and they're going to go, and it, and it did. So it would, you'd have to strive to make something that wasn't so formulaic, I suppose. But I would like to make a really fucking scary film. Yeah. Like, The Exorcist scares me. The most frightening ones get under your skin. It's not the, you know, the man with the chainsaw for me. Yeah, that was a great... I was writing something, actually, that I want... Had similarities to the Babadook, not in terms of character in the book, and but similarities, and it wasn't quite working anyway. And when the Babadook came out, I just went, ah, you see, that's the sort of that was the sort of territory you were going into. But they did something that was really, really great, and uh, so yeah, I'll have to see what happens. <laughs> Uh, Terry, let's do this. Are oh, we going at the back? He's making Gail Porter, ladies it's and gentlemen. It's my really boring Hello, self. Gail. Hello. <laughs> so basically, I think The Shining is probably the most scary thing because it's psychological. No? No, I, 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 that's mad you said that. I was watching something about that this morning. Seriously? Yeah. Oh, okay. Anyway, I'm, I'm not going to ask a question. I'm just going to say, on behalf of probably everybody here, thank you. Thank oh, you. Oh, bless you. Because you know what? So much of what you said resonated with me. And I was thinking, do I keep my mouth shut or do I not? But do you know what? I'm Scottish, so I just keep talking and I can't help myself. But do you know what? It's the most wonderful, wonderful evening. Really, like, I've, I've been in tears. I just loved every minute of it. Thank you, Matt. Matt, you're an absolute superstar. You talk to me. You talk to me. So I didn't pay her to say any of this. I know. I should actually get paid, you know. But also, I'm a second Dan kickboxer. So, do you know what? If you want me in a next movie, I'm in. No problem. <laughs> but Let's no, go. honestly, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you, Matt. Sorry, I'm going to cry again. Oh, bless you. Thank you, Gail. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming, everybody. Thank you, Gail. That was lovely. Uh, let's go to the lady here and then the lady here. We'll do two down in the front row. Hello. I've got a couple of questions. Quick one is, what's your favourite film in the Halloween franchise? 
Is it three? Because that is definitely been waiting the best all night for this. Season oh, of the Witch. I love three. It's so underrated, right? Yeah. It's great. That was, was that was meant to be a quick question. Was it? That was yeah. a quick one. Yeah. I love three. I love the original. Yeah. What did you think to Kills? Uh, it was better than I thought it was going to be. Is it? Yeah. But it doesn't touch Season of the Witch. No, they've uh, still got chance to try and pull that one back, haven't yeah. they, with the new one? Yeah. Let's see what happens. Okay, second question is, um, it seems like as time has gone on with regards to your career, especially when you were talking about the music, your ability to kind of fight that voice that's inside you, that negative voice inside you, has got kind of better, or you've got better, maybe not ignoring it, but like countering it with a, you know, fuck it, I, I'm going to do it yeah. voice. Do you think, there's any correlation between that growth and kind of getting better at like self-care, which you said you do. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There definitely is. It was too sort of, uh, you know, it was overwhelming. I don't want to go into detail, but in my mid thirties, it was a very, very dark on, on happy period. Just for me, you know, like I was in my own little world in that time, but I and I, and I don't want to sort of put too much detail on it, but it was awful. Um, but a couple of things happened to me. One of them was, um, sort of you know, after sort of a breakdown of the uh, probably my third one, I was just like, I can't do this anymore, you know, I can't keep doing this. Every time I just felt a bit weaker, you know, and I thought, I ain't got one of these in me, you know, to keep coming back from. Um, so I I started to do the meditation thing. That was help. That, that helped me massively. And then eventually I, I actually f- I was in I was in New York and I and I was put in the way. And I always thank Sam Mendes and Sonia Friedman for this, but they put me in the way of somebody that I could speak to in terms of a you know, a psychologist and um a bit of psychotherapy. And that helped like massively because then I was able to identify the negative self-talk. Um, and it was so subtle. This thing had had me under a delusion for nearly 30 years about something that had happened to me as a teenager. And that had occupied my mind, my my whole existence for years and years. And I remember just walking down the street in New York and I, I had this revelatory moment where I just saw through the delusion of it all. And that was a big moment in my life. Um and then I, it was sad because I, I, I saw it clearly, the grip that it had had on me for years and years. So with the positive self-talk and the meditation and exercise, now let me tell you this, there are times where I neglect it. And when I do, I go out of balance with it. Um, the best times are when I'm in, you know, I'm meditating regularly. And when I'm able to do that and get into that calm, then I'm able to sort of, when I'm coming out, put in that self-talk. And it's not mumbo-jumbo bullshit. The brain will take, the, the brain will take it, you know, it, it'll accept it. Um, and it's a very powerful thing. So that's helped massively, but it's a practice that I need to uh, to, to do for the rest of my life. Um, yeah, it's refreshing, actually, because you don't often hear people talking about kind of struggles that might seem like easy to the people, like taking care of yourself. Yeah. And I think, uh, yeah, it's kind of refreshing to hear you talk about that. So basically, so thanks. No, you're welcome. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Um, 
Yeah, she worked with my cousin, Killian. Is he your cousin? <laughs> Third cousin, twice removed. Thank, oh, one of them, is he? <laughs> he literally used to live around the corner in his favourite um, dota restaurants down the road. Anyway, I was just thinking, you're really into your music and you hate acting. All right. I don't. Said, see him. <laughs> you're growing. You're growing. You remember you're evolving. When I, you you're remember growing. When I said you're evolving. Yeah. You're evolving. Um, this imposter syndrome is a fucker. I think yeah. everyone has it. Now, I, I, this is not more of a question, but it is. It is well, Someone's been on this? the cocktails. Listen, this I Somebody should have had a uh, mocktail. I. I <laughs> I have agoraphobia. First time I've been on over here. Oh um, wow! There you go. That's great. Well, thank you for choosing this night. Thank you. So we're talking about the second generation Irish thing. Sorry. Yeah. Are you okay? Yeah, it made me cry. I'm happy. I'm happy. I'm happy. Okay. Emo emotions are good. Now, <laughs> could you please write and direct and start in the Shane McGowan biopic? How could Please. I ever play Shane? A handsome I don't see individual. How anybody else can. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love Shane McGowan. <laughs> Did you watch that documentary? Uh, uh, yeah, amazing, wasn't it? Crocker Gold. Yeah, Crocker Gold. So good. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. There's a lot of very talented second-generation Irish around, isn't there? Johnny Lydon. Would you ever... <laughs> hey, lay off, John. He's, he's all right, Johnny. Hey, Johnny's all right. I Would you John ever Lydon. direct a documentary? Is that something that appeals to you in any way? Um, maybe, yeah, if it was the right material. I got asked to do one years ago about Whitney Houston. Whitney? <laughs> yeah, some b bizarre things come through sometimes, and I'm like, you know... Yeah, I'm not sure I'm your man. What was the pitch? How come you were their guy? Did I have they... no idea. I think, you know, I think people sit in these rooms and just randomly throw shit about. They I watch really Dead Man's Shoes and they go, I got this great oh, idea, guy. guys. Yeah, he's bizarre. the guy. <laughs> I'd love to make a great Guided by Voices documentary, you know, but I think, like, years ago, actually, Adam Buxton, um, he, he sort of uh, put a proposal together and we were going to go out to America and do something. But Bob didn't want to do it. You know, he wasn't really into the, the sort of documentary thing. But I think there'd be a great, great um, doco there because they're very, very, still as amazing band as, as they are, they're really unknown in, in some respects. Um, what's the best rock doco you've ever watched? Music doc? Hey? Do documentary. No, real one. Doco. Anvil is an Anvil amazing story. Great. Yeah. Heart-wrenching, inspiring. African-American punk band. Yeah, that is good. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bang. Uh, yeah, that was amazing. That actually made me cry, yeah. I want to ask you, on the subject of documentaries slash mockumentaries, Scorsese and Ledonk, or Ledonk and Scorsese, did you have a good time making that? Because that, for me, when I watch it back, seems like two friends having the best time of their lives. It's so pure. It's so funny. It's so magic. There's such a heart there as well. It's just, for me, it's right. I'm not just saying this to be kind. It is right up there with Spinal Tap as one of the wow. great musical comedy mockumentaries. Has anybody seen it? LeDonc and Scorsese. If oh, you gosh. haven't seen it, you need to check it out. Yeah. Was it a fun shoot? 
Yeah. No, it was. Yeah, we had we had we had a good laugh with it. We just turned up at this like uh, festival that Arctic Monkeys were doing in um, Manchester at the cricket ground, and um, just made a, a like a mockumentary around it with this character that I'd kind of been doing this character for years because he was based on a guy from our town who was in a band. So I used to just kind of do impressions of him and all that, you know. <laughs> and he morphed into this thing that was the donk. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was fun to do. It was, yeah, we had a good laugh doing it, definitely. It's not something I can look at, you know. I find it uncomfortable. I don't know why. I'm noticing a theme here. That's kind of with everything, but yeah, it's good though because you just you put it, you know, to the side and it's on to the next. Yeah, I think when you spend yeah. too long looking back reverentially over your own back catalog, oh, it makes you static as an artist. You're not, you know, you're not pushing forward. No, that's true. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to put myself through that. <laughs> where where did you find Scorsese? Because he's a real life rapper, right? Yeah, I don't I don't remember. I'm being honest here. I don't quite remember. I, I, I that would have come through Shane, and I I don't remember if if he'd just heard a song of his and then found out that he was in Nottingham. All I know is turning up and 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 Dean was there. Who, who's Scorsese? Um, I can't remember. It was so many years ago, but he was great because he he was just the perfect sort of sidekick in a way. Because Ladonk's such a motor mouth, and and Dean was so sort of like chilled out, and uh, yeah, it was sort of an aspirate. He was he was taking this rap act and and, and trying to get him, you know, introduced to the mu- music world. So what we managed to do with that is, so we went up in this camper van, I think, yeah, to Manchester, and we did a gig in front of like fifty thousand people of a song that we'd written the night before. <laughs> Are you going? Calm down, Deirdre Barlow. Yeah, just, just quiet. Yeah. <laughs> So fucking hell, mate. I don't even know where it came from. But I was just putting names on a list. He does a shout out of all these names. And I think even Alex Turner and that, a couple of the guys were throwing in, oh, monkey magic, all oh, this. And I was going, like, writing them down. So on the stage the next day, we just performed a song that we literally wrote. It's not a song, really. But Dean could rap. Dean can rap. He, he makes great music. And uh, But we just wandered out and did it in front of all these people. <laughs> It takes some guts, I suppose, really. But uh, no, it was fun to make. It was, yeah. Maybe I'll revisit it one day. Please do. It's it's like <laughs> it's Andy Kaufman territory, is what that is. When you're out there in a crowd doing it, or bore out, or you know, it's that yeah. kind of style. But I think where... that's it. You know, I get, it gets a bit scary. You know, I think I was starting to get a bit sort of stressed with it, and like, and there was a lot of pressure because I was having to sort of improvise everything, and you know, it was on, and and I was just sort of like times thinking, oh shit, you know. I don't know, but yeah, maybe, maybe, uh, I don't think I'll ever do it again, you know, but I'll have a look at it one day. Any more questions from the room before we get the stage ready for some loud music? We'll do another one down the front. And if there's one more, yeah, we'll do these two and then we'll bag her off. Um, I was just going to ask, you mentioned that uh, the dog was based on somebody from your childhood. Was um, Morel in uh, Room for Romeo Brass had some of the similar person or was it literally just the dance that they both had in common no he was uh, he wasn't actually like he was sort of like the kid on the estate that you you you, there's always a morale on the estate but um he wasn't based on any one person in particular in actual fact i was just playing a normal guy off the estate but i'd started a friendship with this um bare knuckle gypsy fighter called bartley gorman and i'd spent like summers with him photographing him and hanging around with him and Basically, just before I started shooting Romeo Brass, I went to took a video camera and filmed Bartley, and 
because we were talking about going to Bodmin Moor to hunt the beast of Bodmin. And he did this fantastic thing to camera because he's related to Tyson Fury, you know, the boxer. So there's sort of, there's a similar lingo about them. And all that happened was, because I, I sort of like, when if I'm hanging around people, I start to start to sort of inflect their, sorry, absorb their voices and things like that. It's just something I do. And we were doing a rehearsal for Romeo Brass and Shane had a camera on me. And out of, I didn't even think about it. It wasn't even a thought. I started talking like that, you know? Yeah. And it was like, and, and after I'd done this improvisation, Shane was just like, where's that come from? I said, I don't know. I said, I didn't even know. I said, I, I was, I, I've been hanging around with Bartley. I said, don't worry. And he went, no, 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 keep it. But then the character came really from that, like a couple of days before we started shooting. So there. Uh, final question of the night to you, my friend, who's been taking photos for us. What are you going to ask? Here we go. Here's my mic. No, I can't get you a ticket to Glastonbury. <laughs> there you go. No, so it's just um, what is one film that you had wished you had either written or directed? So one that's already out there. The one that you've just gone like, oh, shit, I wish I did that. I mean, I... There's got to be one. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love that film. I think it's my favourite film of all time. So yeah, maybe maybe something as great as that I'd love to have made. I'd love to have been in. You know. Did you not do a stage adaptation of it? What's not that me, no. what's that painting from? Is that just a painting of you as Oh the yeah, character? some artist came and he was photographing um he was like painting people and, and the idea was he was painting actors in roles that they wish they could play and I, I was McMurphy so he painted did a painting and the chief was in the background and uh, yeah, it's nice. Yeah, he did a series of different people. Yeah, but that was just a painting. Yeah, that's about it, Matt. Any more questions? I think we're, we're ready for the interval. So please join me in saying a warm heartfelt thank you to this incredible human being. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Mr. Paddy Considine. Appreciate it. Thank you, Paddy. Thank you. We can talk until forever, but it's in me all the same. It's in me like cancer of anyone. If I summoned all my demons, would you kiss them away? Make love to the Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.